Good morning, church. So it's, um, it's official that the sound problems are my issue. Um, as you know, some of you, we've been struggling with this over-the-ear mic thing now for, gosh, weeks or months. I don't even know. But yesterday, I was in the Central Valley, and we were, had a disaster relief meeting, and I had to speak. I was the third speaker. Mic worked fine. They give me the mic. Doesn't work. Hey, there's too much static. We can't use you. We need you to use the, over, the, the handheld mic. So I take it off, gave it to the next guy, finish. Next guy comes up, same over-the-ear mic, no problems. <laughs> right? So it is uh, officially my problem, but I think we got this fixed. So we're going to try this again this morning. If not, I'll go to a handheld, and we'll go from there. But um, it's good to have you all. Grateful for the opportunity that we get to study God's Word together. We're going to continue our study of Ecclesiastes 3. So if you go ahead and have your Bibles, you can point or click or open up uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we need to remember that this is a, a book that is supposed to challenge us, challenge the way we think. It's supposed to say, hey, this is what life is like if there really is no God. But here's the problem, is the author doesn't reveal that about the book until the last chapter. So we cheated, right? And when we started this study, we went to the last chapter. We looked at the purpose of this book. We did, we, we, we read and, and studied that. And so before we go any further, I just want to remind us, it's been a, several weeks. But if you go to chapter 12, uh, verse 13, it says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so that's as we're looking at these. These words are supposed to, to gourd us, or the spikes are supposed to poke into us to get us to turn towards God, to get us to lean towards God, to get us to see God. And so that is the whole purpose of this thing. And as this author, as he is examining his life, he's sharing that with us. And he's saying, these are the things that I heard. This, is, this book is like a journal of this preacher king. Right? And he's examining different parts of his life's for meaning that ultimately point him to God. So these words, this book, is to show us how the frustrations in life that really, really bother us are actually what give us eternal life as they point us towards God and as we put our faith in God. Amen. Amen. So, so far, right, we're, we're about halfway through chapter 3, the, the author has looked at wealth and he's looked at wisdom, he's looked at the seasons of our lives, and he has determined that we all have many seasons in our lives, but neither them or the wealth or the wisdom will elevate or mitigate or make those seasons more bearable. He has also determined that wealth and wisdom will not lead us to more joy in our life. And he has said that if that is your life's purpose, is simply to just acquire wealth and to acquire wisdom, then you're going to have a pretty joyless an insignificant life. So today, the author of this book, he's going to look at this position about making it to the top. So he's going to be talking about stature and being at the, the height of your game. He gives us the perspective of someone who is at the top of the social structure. As the king, he was at the, the very pyramid, the very top of the pyramid under the sun. And remember, when he's referring to under the sun, he's talking about an earthly perspective He's talking about what we see as humans, and he has made it to the top under the sun. 
And he was the, the, the top dog. He had great influence. He had great wealth. He had great authority. Right? He had his own kingdom. He worked hard to make his kingdom great. And now he is sharing his perspective with us as he is looking around from the top. And I have to be honest with you, this is something that many professionals do. This is something that as a pastor I do. I love to go find people who have been successful in ministry, people that have a great ministry. And, and I say, hey, can I buy you lunch? But really what I want to do is pick their brain. right? I want to learn from them. They have awesome stories. They have great wisdom to share. And we do that in the professional world. I know that you have like professional mentors. And even in the military, guess what we did? We would have mentor lunches. Or we would have somebody that we thought was a mentor that was a higher ranking person. And we would sit down and ask them questions. What do they have to share with us? And I remember one of my greatest mentors in the military was a non-official mentor. He was just somebody I had a relationship with. And he often took time to invest in the younger officers in that unit that we were in. And there's one time we were having lunch. And I, I don't remember what the question was. But I just remember this guy, he was a colonel. He stopped eating. And he looked at him and he said, hey, I just... I just want to be really honest with you. When I was a lieutenant, I thought all the captains knew everything. I thought all the captains had the authority, and I thought all the captains solved all the problems. Then I became a captain and realized the majors were hiding all the information from us. So we couldn't do anything. Then I became a major and realized that the colonels, man, they had all the authority, and everybody else was just doing what the colonels told us. We didn't know what was going on. Then I worked at the Pentagon, and I worked around all these generals, and I realized nobody knows what's going on, right? Nobody has any information at all. And he looked, he said, so just stop thinking that you're going to have all the authority, and you're going to have the answers to all the problems when you make it to the top, because if you do, you're just going to be disappointed when you get there. And what's interesting is that is very similar to the conclusion that the author of Ecclesiastes shares with us. 3,000 years before that, this preacher, this king, wrote this book. And guess what? He said the same thing. And so we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at what he said. I'm going to be really honest. We're going to cover a big old chunk of Scripture today. And as I was studying and trying to prepare how I wanted to share this with you, I thought that if we started to dissect too much, if we started getting into words and sentences, we're going to miss the bigger picture. And I think the bigger picture is what the author was trying to convey, so I want to stay true to that. So we're going to cover a whole big chunk of Scripture. So chapter 3, verse 16 in your Bibles, it's where we're going to start. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read some of his perspective. I'm going to give you a summary of what he said, read some more, and then at the end we're just going to have a few thoughts about what he said. Everybody good with that? So as we read, just remember we're going to be doing earthly perspectives from a world leader. Hey Amen. We're going to start on chapter 3, verse 16. Scripture says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of unrighteousness even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteousness, the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them and that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. 
all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 4. Again, I saw that all oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who had already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun." So we're going to take a minute here and kind of summarize this. What we see is this king is looking out over his, his kingdom, and he is frustrated, right? There's injustice that's going on. There's oppression that is taking place. And you notice that it's taking place in the leadership ranks, right? And the people that he has appointed to take care of his kingdom and the places that he has appointed people to care for his people, oppression and injustices are taking place. And this makes him angry. Right? And then he notices that the, the oppressed are oppressed, and obviously that's not a good place to be. The people doing the oppression, well, they don't really have any friends. There's nobody to comfort them. You've heard the term that there's no honor among thieves. And he says, you know what, they're all just going to die the same, and it's not going to matter. It's not my problem. There's nothing we can do about this. They will all die the same. Then the preacher does something in verse 17. He takes this spiritual principle that he taught earlier in chapter 3 and applies it to this issue of injustice. He said, if there is a season for everything and a time for every matter under the heavens, then there must be a time for justice. Therefore, rather than simply getting angry and sad about all the injustice and the oppression that we see in the world, we should just accept it as a season Right? There's nothing we can do except it as a season and give it to God. Because at this point we're still wrestling with if there's a God. So it's not my problem anymore. We're just not going to worry about it. There's nothing that we can do. And as you read this passage, you find out that his, his real frustration is that as king, there's nothing he can do about it. This is his kingdom. He has all the authority. He is the, the top dog, and he is seeing the hearts of men, and he is seeing oppressions and injustices happening, and he's realizing there's absolutely nothing I can do about this. This is what's going to happen, so we'll just let the season go, and we will move on. That's not fun. right? He, he, he actually says it'd be better to... Never have been born. It's better to remain dead than to live in this world and see the horrible injustices, to see the horrible oppressions that humans are inclined to do and do all way too often. And he said, man, it'd be better just not to live. Good morning. Hope you had a good morning. It's going to get better. All right, so then he continues. In verse 4, he says, Then I saw that all the toil and all skill in the work Come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. So now he's looking at these people that have worked really, really hard. And he's realizing that they're doing it out of envy. They're doing it to keep up with the Joneses. They just worked hard. Their neighbor buys a new car. 
for the first time in their life, their 2010 Mazda feels like a 2010 Mazda. And they want a 2023 Mazda. So they work hard, they buy this car, and as soon as they pull the car into the driveway for the first time, they notice that their other next door neighbor got a boat. Well, I need a boat. When I got a motorcycle, I told them, listen, I got a motorcycle, but now I need to get a trailer and a car to pull that motorcycle, right? And that's just how things work. So you work hard, you get a boat, and now when you're on the lake enjoying your boat, you're on your first day out there, you pull out, you're just going through Facebook, and you see that your best friend is on an awesome vacation. Guess what? Time for me to go on an awesome vacation. So you start working harder and harder, and he's saying it's just like chasing the wind, right? And we're just trying to keep up with everybody else. We are just chasing the wind. But then he says, wait, however, sitting back and doing nothing makes you a foolish sluggard, and you don't even have enough to eat if you do that. So that's not really an option. So here's what he says. Don't be lazy, and don't be a workaholic that is motivated by greed, right? He gives this word of caution against excessive striving. Instead of two handfuls of toil, instead of two handfuls of hard work, just have one hand of hard work and have quietness, right? Have quietness in your life. You should just learn to be content with less. That's just how you make your life better. Just Stop striving for more, just be happy with less. Then the author goes on in verse 7. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asked, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly. Not quickly broken. I've said that in a wedding so many times. I can't believe I just stumbled over it up here. Right? A three-fold cord is not broken. And what we see here is that this preacher, he's making this contrast in these set of verses. On one hand, there's one person who continues in endless toil, yet he is never satisfied. And he acquires all these great riches for himself. He has no one other, nobody else to give them to, right? Or maybe nobody who's qualified enough to give them to, nobody that can handle the many possessions that he has. And he said, this is just vanity. This is just unhappy business. And then he continues to affirm how much two are better than one, right? How, how much two or three are better than one? How much strength there is in a group to have a good reward for their toil. The, the wise person will pursue cooperative ventures rather than give in to, to jealousy, rather to give in to selfish striving for windless things that don't matter. This striving that ultimately will end up isolating himself. Right? The right, wise person will work side by side with another, right? enjoying a good reward and finding help in times of need. And many scholars believe that the author is talking about himself at this point. They believe that he is at the top, but he does not have someone. 
that he can give his things to, somebody that will be able to handle his stuff in a responsible way. And so now he is sitting, he's amassed all of this stuff and has nothing to do with it. He is lonely. Right? It is lonely at the top, and there's no one to pass his stuff to, and also there's no one up there to encourage him, to help him, to support him. He will die, and that will be it. It will all be gone, which leads him to the conclusion of being at the top of the mountain under the sun. And he comes to this very conclusion in these last two verses of chapter 4. And he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living and move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind." This is, this is one of my favorite passages, and it's actually been um, tried to explain. Here's what happens. There's a king. There's a, a, a boy. The boy grows in wisdom. He becomes king. Then guess what? Another boy grows in wisdom and replaces that king, and they forget about him. So we see this cycle of king, king being replaced, people forgetting about the previous king. Right? He said, this is what, what this means is you're going to be at the top of the, the pyramid. You're going to be at the top of the top. Until you're not. Right? There's going to be a time when you won't be there. Then somebody else is going to replace you at the top. And guess what happens to you? You're forgotten. Right? You are forgotten. If you look at kings and emperors and pharaohs, and we look at this ancient past, we can all see they had this fear of being forgotten in their lives. They built statues. They built buildings. They put their face on money. Right? Everybody likes looking at money, and they say, oh, if I put my stuff here, they won't forget me. They built these huge burial tombs. Some even built huge burial cities. There is no way that you will ever be able to forget about me. And what happens when the next king comes along? He builds on top of those buildings. Right? He gets new money with his face on it. Right? And as we look back, we can see that this that this is how they worked, and the next guy would come along and just replace the guy that was before him. And this is really sad when we look at the conclusion of this guy's remarks. He basically says this, you live in a life that's full of injustices, it's full of oppression, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right? You're going to work really, really hard, you're not going to have any real close friends, and then you're going to die and be forgotten. Joy, 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 right? Pollyanna, he is not. Right? He does not see the good things. He is just stating the facts. And he said this earlier. You, you're born, you live, you die. That's it. We're done. But now, let's spend just a few minutes and we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at where he is pushing. We're going to look at what happens when we have eternity placed on our hearts. If you remember in chapter 3, he talked about that there's been eternity placed on man's heart. This is somebody who knows that there's a God, who knows that there's eternity. So when we start hearing him talk, we naturally think there is more to our existence. There is more to life than what he is saying. So let's just uh, look at that for just a few minutes. 
Right? Our, our desire, right, when we have eternity placed in our heart, our desire in life is not to get to the top of the mountain in this life. That is not our desire. We don't get there and we can't plant the flag. And we all know people who, that's what their goal in life is. And just like we've talked about this before, Rockefeller, how much money did he need to be rich? Just one more dollar. Right? There's always going to be something else when we are focused on under the sun. But when God has put eternity on our heart, we desire much, much more than anything we can achieve or gain in this life, anything we can achieve on this earth. Simply put, we desire to be in God's glory forever. That is where our heart seeks. That's where our desire is. And we cannot reach that here on earth. So let's look at some of these ideas from an internal perspective. Let's look at some of these ideas from someone who can see over the sun, right? We're not here on earth. We're looking at God's heart. And we're seeking his heart. So first, let's look at injustices and um, oppressions. This was going to be a really tough one. I was actually struggling with how to communicate this, and I was reading a passage, and Pastor John Piper, he summed this up really nicely. He said it like this, Christians are about all injustices because all justice is rooted in God. Right? Christians are about, like we care about, Christians care about all injustices because all justice is rooted in God. And let's just take, take a minute, we just look at a few verses in Scripture. If we look in Deuteronomy 32, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all of his ways are just. We're describing his character. It's just, it's perfect. In Psalms we read, The, the king in his mighty love loves justice. Right? He loves it. He is justice. He loves justice. In Revelation it says, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. He loves justice. He is justice. And as Christians, we are to be about what our Father is. If we neglect injustices, if we don't care about all the injustices everywhere that we see, then we're not acting like Christians. Right? Because Christians care about injustice. We especially care about injustices against our God. We, we are very concerned. We are very upset about injustices against our God's creation and against people. The prophet Isaiah tells us that Jesus will bring forth justice to all nations and he will be victorious. And church, when we hear this, we know that true justice and freedom is not found in government. It is not found in politics. That true justice is only found in Jesus. Our confidence does not lie in a justice system, but in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. God has promised a day when his son will judge the righteousness and the wicked, and that day is coming. But as Christians, we are not to sit and wait and ignore injustices and oppressions as they fill our streets. We are to have the heart of God, and we are to hate those things and to fight against those things. Church, this is not our hour to retreat or hide behind empty politics. This is our time to stand closer to God, to draw near to God. We are his bride and he wins and he will ultimately judge perfectly. And during these times, we should draw near to him. Here and now, this is our church. This is our time to fight against injustices and oppression, to bring hope to the hopeless, to defend the helpless, to protect the weak, to shine light in the darkness. To reflect Jesus to the world. It's not about how people vote. It's about if people know Jesus or not. 
And we are to reflect Jesus to the world. When our hearts are set on eternity, our sights are set on the perfect and the the just kingdom that will be established when Jesus returns. And as Christians, that is what we work towards. As Christians, that is what our heart is set on. As Christians, that is where we want to move the ball. Second, being a workaholic or a sluggard are are both not only foolish and irresponsible, they are very short-sighted. We should honor God and center our desires on Him. We should be content with all that God has given to us. We should be content with all that God is doing in our lives. I want to use a passage here. It's probably one of the most misquoted or taken out of context passages we see. Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. See, Paul, he gets this. He could be happy because he could see things from God's point of view. He could see things from above the sun. He focused on what he was supposed to do. He focused on eternal things of God. He did not focus on what he was missing. He did not focus on what he did not have. He did not focus on what he thought he should have or where he thought he should be. He kept his focus on God. And Paul was grateful for everything that God had given him. Paul was not distracted by all the things he didn't have. He was not distracted by the things he could have done if he had such and such. But he maintained his focus on God. He maintained his, his, his desire His eyes on the eternal things of God. And when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, it's not about what God will do for you. That's not what this passage is about. But it has this emphasis on obedience and service to God. Right? This is a passage about what will you do for God. Right? When eternity is on our heart, we don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Man, we pursue God with everything that we have. We don't just do enough to get by. We don't just say, oh, this is good enough. But when we are pursuing Jesus, we pursue Jesus with everything that we have. And then we turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need more strength to pursue you more. And we become more dependent on Jesus. We become dependent on Jesus' strength to help us to pursue Jesus because it is Christ who strengthens us. And third, when eternity is on our hearts, And we look at the top, it's not this single point. The top is a big table. And all of our brothers and sisters are sitting at it. It's where we gather, it's where we fellowship, it's where we worship together, it's where we do life together forever. That is Jesus' prayer for the church today. That we would be one, that we would be united as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. That we would have fellowship that we would be there for each other, that we would support each other. If we go through Scripture, I think there's 82 or 83 one another's. That we would bear one another's burdens. My favorite one, especially if you have brothers, is that we would patiently tolerate one another. Right? That we would love one another, that we would care for one another, we would minister one another. It's, it's about being together. The Christian walk is not some solo journey. In the book of Acts, we read about this first church. We read about the early church where they worshiped together and they ate together and they lived life with one another. And so many times I, I see Christians reading the, the, the Bible and they say, man, I wish this was the early church. Man, why don't we do the things of the early church? And I say, yeah, we should. Who are you fellowshipping with? Well, I don't have time for that. 
Right? Who, who, who's in your small group? Who are you studying scripture with? Well, I come on Sunday morning for an hour unless I'm late, then it's like 40 minutes. Right? I, 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 I want the early church, but I don't want to do the early church. That takes effort. Right? I, I, have you met the people at the church? They're kind of weird. So I just do my little hour there and I'm gone. Right? And that's not what scripture says. The church, we are supposed to be together. We're supposed to live life with one another, right? When our hearts are set on eternity, we are working for like unification of the saints, not isolation of the saintly. Right? We don't go and just, just meditate by ourselves. That's not what scripture talks about. But we need one another. We, de- we depend on one another. And that's what the church is. It's this unity of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally, with unity, with eternity, our, our hearts are focused on eternity. Guess what they're focused on? They're focused on Jesus. They're not focused on us. or They're not focused on our legacy. Who cares about us? Who cares if the next generation remembers us, but they don't know anything about Jesus? Who cares? Now, here, here's the secret. For most of us, the next generation isn't going to know who you are. Right? The next generation isn't going to remember you. What's important is if they remember Jesus. What's important is if they know who Jesus is. The truth is, knowing Jesus will be much more important for eternity than knowing Kendrick. It, that, that'll get you nothing. Knowing Kendrick and a dollar won't even get you coffee nowadays. Right? The, the important thing is that they know Jesus. Paul tells, he tells Timothy, he's this young pastor, he tells him this, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's not talking about his life story. Paul's not talking about who Paul is. Paul's talking about the gospel of Jesus. This is what you are to pass on. This is what is important. This is the gem. This is the most valuable thing in life. You need to, you need to pass this on and on and on. The German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this, the righteous man lives for the next generation. He doesn't live for himself. He's living for the next generation. And when we truly live for the next generation, we don't give them some dim remembrance of us. We give them the the things that will last for all of eternity. We give them Jesus. We tell them about Jesus. We demonstrate Jesus. We show Jesus. When things were piled in the Old Testament, right? And God said, hey, I want you to stack those stones at that river costume because I want you to be able to tell people the things that you did. That's not what he said. I want you to put the stones so you can tell them about things that I did. I want you to be able to tell people about me, that they know about God. We have to give people Jesus. Here's the honest truth. If my grandkids don't know my name, if my grandkids don't know who I am, but they know Jesus, that is victory. That is a win. With eternity on our hearts, Jesus is to be made known now and forever. Who cares about us, to be honest with you? This is about Jesus. Church, the, the view from the top under heaven. So when we are as high as we can get on this earthly world, it reminds us that guess what? We're not in authority. Right? As soon as we say the view from the top under heaven, we're already putting a limit on our authority. And this man who had everything had a limit to his authority. Advancement or getting to the top is truly meaningless. Position, authority, popularity, prestige, those are all good goals, right? They are all something we could do in life and maybe some aspirations, but as far as our life's work, as far as our accomplishment, there's nothing that we would point to and say, I made it to the the top and be completely satisfied. Say that that is meaning in my life. 
Real meaning, real joy, real satisfaction comes from knowing God. The author tells us at the end, when all has been heard, when the life has been fully examined and we learn that the duty of man, right, we learn that man was created, we learn that man finds his fulfillment, we learn that man finds his joy in life when he fears God and he is obedient to his commands. When we talk about fearing God, we're talking about who knows who God is. Right, who fears God above all other things, follows his, follows his commandments above all other things, has a deep and passionate love for Christ when we are fulfilled, when we find joy, is when we fear God and follow His commands. What we learn as we looked at this passage today is that the view from the top is bleak. It is not a beautiful landscape. It's actually pretty ugly if you can't see Jesus from there. And so church, as we pursue things, let us make the number one thing that we pursue, Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we just take a minute and pause as we read your scripture and as we examine our own hearts, as we examine our own life, and we look at these things that we may have put above you. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness as we elevate things and say, Lord, I'm going to pursue this job i'll find you later lord i'm gonna raise my family and when i'm done with that i'll come and seek you and lord why those are good things they're not god things and lord we would just pray that in our hearts you would give us the strength and the discernment and the wisdom that our hearts would desire you primarily that our hearts would be focused on you that we would not be sidetracked lord we don't want the things of this world the only thing that we want is you And we ask for your strength, we ask for your grace, we ask for your mercy, we ask for your power as we pursue you. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And all of God's people said, amen.